This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science podcast. My name is Heath Brown, and today uh, I have the real, real pleasure, pleasure to be talking to the author of American Wild Black, African Americans, Immigrations, and the Limits of Citizenship. The book is uh, recently published by Oxford University Press, and the author who I have the pleasure to talk to today is Niambi Michelle Carter. Niambi, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Heath. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you so much. We're... we're uh, uh, recording this about your book uh, with with APSA in our mind. Uh, so I'd like to talk to you about both of those things. That is your really interesting book and also this year's annual meeting. Um, so before we get to all of that, maybe you could give us the, the briefest of introduction to who you are. So maybe tell us a little bit. Okay. Um, my name is Neon B. Carter. I'm an assistant professor of political science at Howard University I've been a political scientist for 10 years now. Um, I received my PhD from Duke University in 2007, and I trained under Dr. Paula McLean, who is a giant in the field and our incoming president at the APSA. Um, but really, you know, I'm a Prince George's County native um, with roots in D.C., Maryland, and most prominently North Carolina. My mom is from Eastern North Carolina, and I spent a lot of time there, not just in graduate school, but as a kid growing up. And so really, I am a person who is interested in Black people and trying to understand how Black people navigate um, the political world. And that's sort of my interest um, broadly, and that was my interest in this book, and that's sort of why I became a political scientist. Yeah, I can't think of a book. Um, as incredibly timely uh, as this book. Uh, it, in, it investigates an, an aspect of American politics that is, is really at the middle of, of one of the central debates, conflicts of, of our current moment. Um, and so I know we don't write our books uh, like in the moment. So the, the, the timing of your research that has been going on for a long time uh, couldn't be better. Um, you start the book with a personal story from a family event. And you just mentioned that you're from North Carolina. That family event happens in North Carolina. I wonder if you could recount that story a little bit and, and how it sets up the investigation in the book. Well, as a grad student, I was at Duke University in Durham, but my family is from Warren County, North Carolina, which is about an hour uh, north of there. And I spent a lot of time with my family on the weekends. My mom has a, a number of brothers and sisters. Um, and I was at an uncle's house and he's a Mason. All of my uncles, for the most part, are brick Masons. 
uh, by training and it's a skilled trade. But one of the things that my uncle was lamenting as a business owner was the fact that he was going to bid on this job, but he didn't think he would get it. He thought that they would go with this uh, lower cost um Latino firm, I mean, and I'm using firm in, in the loosest sense, but that they would go with the cheapest labor. And, you know, we, he goes on and he says a few other things and he says, well, you know, that's how white people do. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but it really made me think about the work that I was doing as a graduate student. Um, under Dr. McLean, there was a, we were doing some work about inter-minority relations in Durham and in particular looking at different kinds of attitudes. But one of the things I noticed is that they, we didn't really have a theory in political science for talking about what I had just witnessed, which is someone demonstrating an attitude that for some would look anti-Latino, but was really to me and what stood out to me, a critique of white supremacy. And so that conversation really gave me um, what I needed to try to intellectualize something that I think is very visceral and very personal. And so that's why I start with that anecdote, because that conversation, that thing that my uncle said really stuck with me and really gave me a way into thinking about how black people might be framing this question around immigration. Yeah, so so this this gets to this. I think what what you might describe as a stylized fact that you challenge both theoretically and also empirically in the book, and and that is that that African Americans are hostile to immigrants and opposed to immigration. I wonder what this stylized fact um, and this sort of this common notion gets wrong. What is what's what's our because because that that um, the encounter that you have with your uncle. Um, would be interpreted very differently than the way you ultimately interpret it and develop the theory in the book. So what does that, that, that sense get wrong about this dynamic? One, I think there is not a real understanding of Black people and Black experience. The way I experienced that conversation was as a person with a very clear sort of Black identity who's been steeped in Black communities and with a very clear racial socialization experience. So the way that I understood that question or what he was saying, excuse me, was probably very different than an outsider who had no prior knowledge who might have just been listening. But the other part, I think, that we miss theoretically, especially in the competition literature, is that some things by their very nature are competitive. So is it that groups are competing with each other because of their race or the fact that we just can't share seats in Congress? or we can't share the mayoral office, right? Those things by their very nature are competitive because we have a zero-sum political system. So instead of labeling, labeling these groups as being competitive with one another, look at the very nature of the context in which they're coming together, which is competitive. And I think when we think about things like jobs, because that's a big one when we talk about immigration, it's always immigrants are taking jobs, but it's like immigrants actually don't have the power to take jobs from anybody. Someone is giving them a job. That someone, typically speaking, is a white person. And that reason that they're getting the job is because they're exploiting this person's labor. It's the cheapest labor. Now, we may racialize why people get certain jobs and say things like, well, Latinos work hard or Black people are angry and lazy, but we know that's not true. And so what I was really trying to capture is that sort of nuance that we often miss, because I think a lot of the theories just don't work 
on Black people in part because they were not found with Black people in mind in a lot of cases. So you propose, as you just suggest, a a different uh, way to understand these dynamics. And you, I don't know if you coined the term, but but you use the term uh, conflicted nativism Mm -hmm. uh, as a way to understand what's going on here. Um, And then you test this with with data, and we'll talk about those tests later. Mm -hmm. But let's talk about the theory. Uh, Would you briefly walk us through what this term conflicted nativism means and, and what it suggests? Okay, so I did coin the term because I was trying to think of a way to capture this ambivalence, right, that I think my uncle encapsulates very well, which is, on the one hand, I understand that groups have a right to self-determination. I believe deeply in those things. I'm committed to those ideas. On the other hand, I am very concerned that these Uh, other people may harm me, not just because they're here, right? Like that's not the issue. It's because I understand how white people will use those people to hurt my group. And I think that's a very different way of understanding a national identity and how people attach to the nation. So my argument is that really black people are trying to claim an idea of Americanness because they want to assert a certain primacy in the racial order. Um, And if there's any sort of benefit to come from it, it should come from the fact that I am a native born American. And at the same time, I want to respect that these people have a right to, to the life that they want to live, right? That they want to come to America for a better life. I understand it. I can intellectualize it, but there is fear that this group will somehow be able to become more part of the the American dream than I will, right? Um, Or before I am able to. And I think what I'm trying to get to is, you know, it's not all black and white and it's not all about um, hating immigrants, but having a more sophisticated racial narrative. And I think people do, I think black people do. I just don't think it comes out in part because of the ways in which the literature has framed um, or not. Black opinion, if that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> no, it absolutely does. When I was uh, reading the book, and, and I imagine how you think about this, um, this feels like such a contemporary topic uh, with with the, the the conflicts about immigrants and immigration uh, so salient right now, and 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 President Trump has has made them such, um, and that's because it's in the news every day. But you place this into a much longer historical context, and that it's only in that longer historical context that we can um, really understand your argument uh, about the ambivalence of African Americans towards immigrants, because it's not just about immigration today, it's about the way immigration has played out over 250, 300 years or so. So without without going into the full 300-year history or so... Um, how do you think about this in the longer historical context? What are the what are the primary periods that that make this uh, current ambivalence um, make sense to you? Well, I mean, I think at least for me, I couldn't think about it without this historical context, right? Because for me, everything has a vintage, and so when you're looking at sort of black opinions over the longer arc, I really start with black people themselves employing this language of a stateless people, um, particularly um, in the mid 
to early uh, 19th century, excuse me, when Black people are still technically not citizens, even free Black people. And because of that non-citizen status, um, they were suspect. Even those who had never been enslaved before were facing um, real dangers of being enslaved. And so people were using uh, internal migration um, as a way to escape potential enslavement or re-enslavement. But when you move to places like Ohio and Indiana and Illinois, and these are not slave states, but are doing things like fining you or taxing you for being in the borders or even making it a rule that you can't live there as a free Black person, Black people are forced uh, further north, many of them into Canada. So that's one of the sort of primary ways. And of course, in 1850, with the Fugitive Slave Act being passed, this ramps that up. But then we see with uh, Chinese exclusion, you again see Black people being highly critical of American policy at that point, because what they understand now as free people, right, as a, a whole people that are free, that the very same sort of racial logic that made it possible to enslave them and exclude them from the American body politic is also at work in going to exclude Chinese people. I mean, the violence that Chinese people faced, um, the forced labor conditions in many cases, the subpar labor conditions um, is a real lesson for Black people. So you have Black people saying things like, we don't really think these people can be assimilated, but we also don't think that what the American um, system is doing uh, to these people is right. And then you see that again, um, in, in the 1960s, I would say probably most prominently, I don't spend a lot of time on it in the book, but immigrant immigration uh, revision, right? And, and, and in particular, revisiting these formulas that we've been using all this time, which kept lots of people of color from Africa, Latin America, Asia, out of the country, is part of that civil rights um, voting rights moment. And so there's a, a deeper understanding. And of course, you know, we'll talk about this when we talk about apps. my work is trying to look at that in a more contemporary place. But I would say those are sort of three really important periods of, of sort of Blacks really thinking about, thinking through and taking on um, immigration uh, and immigration policy in this in this country. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Now, in Chapter 5, you, you test uh, some of your theories uh, with a variety of data sources, particularly original um, uh, public opinion survey data. Now, in doing that, um, the concept of linked fate, uh, which has always had this powerful impact on African-American mm -hmm. attitudes, comes up. I wonder if you'd talk about whether that variable uh, explains attitudes uh, towards immigrants. That is, uh, whether variation in, in uh, African-American feelings of linked fate is related to positive or negative feelings towards immigrants, or, or whether other variables explain these attitudes towards immigrants better. Well, I mean, linked fate absolutely does matter. I mean, Dawson talked about linked fate um, in his 
seminal work behind the mule. And I think what linked fate is really allowing us to see is that black people can extend their community right beyond just other black people and really bring other people into um, their fold as it were um, when, when thinking about whether these people actually look like you, right. Or, or their life chances are uh, intertwined with yours. And the reason that I include that in part, because, I mean, of course it's not the only issue as you allude to, but one of the things that we see is that for Blacks who have some sense of linked fate, they feel closer to immigrant groups over whites. And I think that's an important intervention because I, what I'm trying to um, really get us to think about in, in, in the book is to think of the many ways in which um, race structures how people see themselves in relationship to one another. And one of the ways that they do that is through link fate, because what link fate allows people to do is connect their particular experiences to those of other groups who don't necessarily have the same experience, but maybe undergo a similar racialization moment. Now, of course, I can't push that too far because those are not the questions that were asked. Of course, um, we didn't ask everything, but um I think what makes Link Fate interesting, right, is that when we look at all the things that Black people say make people an American, right, it is many of the same things that I think most white Americans would say, right? They think it is important that you speak English, not a majority, but they think it's important, right? Um, I'm sorry, a majority do think it's important that you speak English. To be a Christian um, is a very strong component. Um, But there are these sort of interesting ways in which Blacks are connecting um, themselves to a people who may not be their people. Um, and to the extent that people see themselves as, say, typical Americans, right, um, it can increase uh, their likelihood of having a sort of more nativist orientation. Um, so there, so this is a, a long muddled answer, <laughs> but all of that is to say there are a number of ways that Blacks conceptualize themselves as being um, connected to other people. And race is one of the primary ways that they do that. And when we look at who Blacks see themselves as connected to, they see themselves as being most connected to Latinos. Um, and I think that's a, not a small thing. Yeah. the the You, you then connect this analysis that you do of um uh, public opinion and the various aspects of it and its relationship to, to nativist, pro and anti-immigrant feeling to actual uh, behaviors. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and you do that in that same chapter. Chapter the, And this allows you to connect attitudes to action. Uh, what did you find on this? Are, are African-Americans that you study connecting beliefs to behavior? Uh, or did you find something else? I thought this this was so interesting uh, it was, uh, I believe, on on uh, writing letters to Congress was one of the measures that you have, and right. the, the interest or willingness of of African Americans who hold certain views to engage in that kind of political activity. So, what did you find uh, in in that part of your analysis? That that's not really the case, right? So, this is where I think the important break is, right? People have a host of attitudes um, that are interesting, right? That that are interested but they're not really activists around this issue. So while 
Um, Linked fate can make people feel connected to other people and certainly does not make one more nativist in orientation. Um, It doesn't make them more active either. Right. And I think that's an important um, caveat to make because people can say a lot of things and people can feel a lot of things, but it's really what people do um, that matters. And it's not to suggest that attitudes can't lead to action. Absolutely, they can. But it doesn't seem to be the case here. Why it doesn't, um, it's, it's, it's not for sure. But I will say, again, if you're paying attention to the larger historical narrative, Blacks have never been activists around issues of immigration. They've had a lot of ideas about it. They've been highly critical about it. Um, but they have not really taken a moment to to um, to really organize their efforts one way or the other around the issue of immigration. Now, yeah, no, please go ahead. No, I was going to say now we can we can maybe talk about some some problems with that, right? Um, that some people may have, but that's not something they have done typically. No. Yeah, and and just thinking about this sort of ambivalence that you find and how it's explained um, by the sort of the the larger picture that African-Americans place immigration and immigrants into, which is one of of white supremacy, not necessarily of direct conflict. I think it's just such an interesting way uh, to think about that. Again, the the book's title, American uh, While Black, African-Americans, Immigration and the Limits of Citizenship. we also today, in addition to talking about your very interesting book, which we could continue talking about for a long time, uh, we also want to talk a little bit about the APSA meeting. Uh, so let's talk about it. Um, uh, when did you attend your first annual meeting? Oh, my God. And, and what, what more important than that, uh, what was that experience like? Oh, my goodness. Uh, when was my first APSA? In the early 2000s. I don't know exactly the year. Okay. Uh, maybe 2004, maybe. Um, 2003. Um, and what was it like? You, you, were, you, were a chi- you were a child at that I point. I was a child. It was very overwhelming. One, because there's so many people. Um, I just remember feeling small in that space. Yep. Um, the other part that got me was just, you know, there was just so much to do, right? I mean, there were so many meetings. I mean, it's even bigger now probably than it was even then. Um, But there were so many panels to go to. But it was just interesting to see all the people that had written all this stuff that I was really interested in and meet them as like real people. And it was the first time that I'd ever met like my intellectual heroes. Who do you remember meeting? um, I remember meeting Diane Pender Hughes. Um, She probably doesn't remember. And... um, not at that meeting, but at a different meeting, I was able to meet Michael Dawson and I had read Behind the Mule and I was a huge fan of Behind the Mule um, at that time. And I'm still a big fan of the work. And I just remember being so bold over. I met, um, you know, uh, Hank Walton at one of my APSA meetings, uh, rest in peace. He probably does not remember meeting me, <laughs> uh, mm-hmm. would not remember. Um, but I got to meet a lot of people. But more importantly, I got to meet lots of folks over the years who became my colleagues and my friends. Um, so it was a great, um, it was a great meeting place and a great space to get professionalized and not in the usual ways, right? It wasn't just about presenting the work and getting the feedback. It was really having conversations with people who were saying things like, where are you in process? Are you okay? 
How are you doing? Um, and I think it was one of these meetings where I met um, Holly Fogg, uh, Heath Fogg Davis, excuse me, um, for the first time. It was either, at, yeah, I think it was the APSA. And he was extremely helpful um, in some work I was doing at the time, um, just being you know, giving and thoughtful about my work and, and sending me um, things I should look at. And so those were the kinds of things that I really got out of that meeting. And, and thinking back in, in, in having now attended many more, uh, mm-hmm. what, what's the best advice you could give someone who's attending for the first time, likely a graduate student, maybe a very uh, precocious undergraduate student or a, a new member of the field? Uh, what's the best advice you have for somebody attending for the first time to get over those feelings of feeling small and, and to enjoy and to learn from and to benefit from? So what's the, what's your best advice? I would say be strategic and pace yourself. Um, you don't have to go to everything. Um, go to the things that are important to you. Um, so every panel where your advisor is going to be is not necessarily the panel you need to be on. Go see some other people, meet people that you don't usually have access to. Um, Speak to people, introduce yourselves. I mean, it's usually a very welcoming place. I mean, people are usually just thrilled that somebody knows who they are and that have read their work or is interested in their work. And so don't be shy about going and speaking to people um, and introducing yourself. I would also say um, be intentional when you meet people. One of the things that I think um, I learned and one of the things I learned from just watching other people make this mistake, which is be sincere. Don't just go try to talk to the most popular person in your field or the person that you think can do something for you. Speak to everybody because you never know who might be your lifeline at some point. And people sense insincerity. So be sincere in your meetings. Don't just talk to people because you think, oh, this person's at Harvard or this person's at Michigan. And I think, you know, they're going to be my conduit in. No, talk to the people that you have sincere overlaps with, that you have a sincere um, connection with. Follow up when you do establish those connections. I think sometimes people forget that you have to reach out. You have to extend yourself. Many times faculty members, particularly folks who are either on the tenure track or folks who are tenured and now have a ton of service responsibilities, things just slip off their radar. It's not that they're not caring. It's just that they get busy. So if you're the graduate student, you have a little more time. Just send them an email and say, hey, how you doing? I met you at this meeting. I just wanted to thank you. You know, because a little thank you goes a long way, I would say. And a little um, a little nudge for many of us goes a long way. Um, The only other thing I would say is wear something that you feel comfortable in. I see a lot of graduate students who are wearing the suit. As you can tell, they hate Mm -hmm. when they look so uncomfortable and they are wearing shoes, especially for some of the women that are killing their feet. Um, And just wear what you're comfortable in. Look professional, yes, but, you know, don't feel like you need to walk around in a full suit. I mean, look at what some of us are wearing. I mean, I know for many days I am wearing probably sneakers or flats or something um, much more comfortable than I used to when I was a graduate student because I thought that's what you had to do to be, quote unquote, professional. Um, So I would say that. And then um, make sure you have uh, your contact information at the ready. So if that's a card, have it with you. I am terrible about that, but Trust me, I have had to, you know, navigate 
uh, without a card. So if you have a card, make sure it has all your contact information on it because sometimes you only have a few moments because we're doing receptions and committee uh, meetings and all award ceremonies. So just make sure you have your card available um, and, and be an entrepreneur. Don't be ashamed to put yourself out there. And if you're not getting what you need at your home institution, look for mentors elsewhere because hopefully all of these little contacts you make, people will become mentors to you in various ways. And I have certainly had that experience at APSA. Now, APSA is in your hometown this year. You don't have to travel far. Yes. Uh, and, and for that reason, we can we can ask you for some recommendations. So uh, what maybe one or two recommendations to get to know the D.C. you know so well? Do you have a restaurant recommendation, a coffee shop recommendation, something that if we were to peel our way out of the conference hotel, we might do to enjoy the district? Yeah, well, D.C. has lots of great little restaurants all around town. I would say if you meander over to my side of town, closer to Howard University, you would do yourself an honor and a privilege to go look at our beautiful campus because it is gorgeous. Mm-hmm. And while you're over there, um, there there's a place called The Royal right on Florida Avenue, which is a great coffee shop, bar and restaurant. They have good little foods there. Um, you can go to High Con, which is lovely ramen. Um, Thai Crossing, which is amazing. Um, there's also Hazel, if you want to do a little bit more fine dining uh, types of things. So Hazel is nearby. You can also go to Compass Coffee, which is really nice. Um, it's right off of uh, for, uh, off of uh, U Street, which is great. Um, there are uh, the Dirty Goose, which is another bar if you want something um, that is more LGBTQ friendly, but also inclusive of all people. They also make great drinks and have a lovely happy hour um, that you can avail yourself of. Um, there is Set Osteria, um, which is a great place to have brunch if you want to venture out a little bit. Um, there's uh, Jenny's Ice Cream if you just want to get you some nice artisanal ice cream that is um, worth every penny you spend on it. Uh, we have a milk bar, which is not far. So if you want to get a good uh, funfetti cake or you want to get some um, cereal milk ice cream, um, that is a lovely place to go as well. But I would definitely encourage people uh, to venture out. I mean, of course, over by Catholic University, it is beautiful over there. You can see uh, the Basilica over there, and it is a gorgeous, it's a gorgeous part of Northeast uh, to see. So if you want to leave Northwest, you can come visit Northeast. You can go to Brooklyn's finest in Brookland, not to be confused with the Brooklyn. <laughs> um, and there's Casbah, which is, I mean, Calabash, excuse me, which is a lovely little tea bar. So we have lots of, lots of great um, small businesses in the area. And of course, Union Market, um, right off of Moore Street, off of Fifth Street in, in Northeast. It's a huge warehouse full of pop-up stores to buy clothing and that kind of stuff, but also all kinds of food, fast casual. Um, and there's a place there called Neapole Savory Smokery, which which makes the best white fish salad and smoked salmon salad. So those are a few of my recommendations. These are amazing recommendations. I'm going to get all of these down and share them <laughs> widely so people uh, can can check out each one of these and, and they're going to stay so much longer than they had planned to stay just to make it to each one of these different stops. Yes, they should. Uh, I mean, it's the, uh, a time of year to be in, in D.C. actually. Conference organizers are looking for a good idea. It would be to do a 
bus tour of all of these places, including a stop at uh, Howard University and Catholic University and all of these other places. Uh, In in doing that uh, trip around D.C., getting the book American While Black, uh, African-Americans, Immigration, uh, and the Limits of Citizenship, uh, Niambi's book published by Oxford University Press would be a great idea. Uh, Niambi, thank you so much for everything today. Thank you so much for having me, Heath. I really appreciate it.